0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: The scripture reading today is from Galatians 2, 6-10. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles." And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Ed. Uh, so as Angie mentioned just a moment ago, uh, every year on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, we give a little message that, that is really more for um, the family at Christ Press. If you're a guest, really all we want you to do is just receive and you'll, uh, you'll eavesdrop a little bit here on, on the things I'm about to share, uh, but it's this, uh, Thanksgiving is coming up and... Uh, this is a time to pause and give thanksgiving, and, and one of the things that um, I guess I, on behalf of church leadership, get to do, uh, so far, seven years straight, I get to come up here and thank those of you who have been generous uh, with your giving specifically to the local church and specifically to the mission of Christ Pres um, ministry like Everything else, God has appointed means to get it done, and uh, without resources, ministry doesn't happen. With resources, ministry does. And um, you know, the Bible's call—it's really less of a call and more of an invitation uh, to participate in what God's doing in the world uh, through giving back to the one who has been abundantly generous to us, and. Um, You know, there's there's some language that I brought uh, to our team that I am now wanting to cancel. Uh, And it's the language that we often use around the offering, where we say, we just give back a small portion to you. And I think the better word is a faithful portion. And I think that's the word we're going to continue to use. Because for some people, faithful is small. The widow's mite is, is a good picture of that, numerically small. If you're unemployed, 10% of zero is zero. Um, For some, uh, faithful means going way north of the standard 10%. For some, faithful means somewhere north of 20% or 40% or north of 60%. Uh, It all depends on whatever degree God has lavished us with resources. This is one of the reasons why our church uh, gives north, uh, gives away north of what the average church gives away of what comes in. The average church gives away somewhere around 10% for causes outside of itself and for ministries outside of itself. And we're in a position where we get to give away 40% of of whatever the Lord entrusts to us. And um, I guess a couple of things I wanna say around this, one is personal and the other is I hope, motivational. The personal aspect is that the generosity is, is um, it really is necessary for spiritual health. And it's actually a, a sign for spiritual health. And, you know, Jesus, it's one of the things that he taught about more than anything else. And he said one thing that is impossible. is impossible for anyone to love God and love money at the same time. You can love God and have money, but you can't love God and love money at the same time. You know, Paul to the young pastor Timothy says, command, in other words, be really, really direct with people who are rich. Command those who are rich, Paul says, to be generous. Otherwise, otherwise, their money might get them around the neck and they might wander from the faith because you can't love God and money at the same time. And if they do that, they will pierce themselves with many griefs. In the United States today, of churchgoers give some amount to their local churches. 50% of local churchgoers give nothing to their local churches, which which means that somewhere around 50% of American churchgoers are in grave spiritual danger. And uh, you only need to read the words of Jesus around this to to understand that. And and, and those who give and give and give and give, those who have a generous posture, not just to the church, but toward the world and toward their neighbors, tend to be happier people. And you know, when Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive that the word there actually means happy. It's happier to be open-handed and, and to share than it is to to take 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 and to hoard 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 and to keep keep keep. And so so that's that's sort of the pastoral spiritual aspect of it. But then there's what I hope is a motivational aspect of it. And that is that that every dollar that's given to this particular church is invested well. Uh, the budget, I, I don't know what anybody gives. I don't want to know. I'm not going to know. I'm not going to look. But I, I know where it goes. And this is why the lion's share of the Saul's giving goes to Christ' Presbyterians. It's not because I work here. It's not because the church needs what we can give. But it's because I believe in, I guess what, what, what I often refer to as sort of the mutual fund that is the local church, where you're investing in a lot of things all at once with every gift. To run the church, to, to care for, for members, to, to do things like worship and small group and have a team that can lead volunteers and so on, but it also includes things that we invest in about 40% on the outside, planting new churches locally in the United States and globally, advancing the gospel at the university. I appreciate Angie mentioning RUF and all that, that, that we're able to participate in there, integrating faith and work um, other investments include our, our friends with disabilities and special needs. We, we, that's a special calling that God's placed on our church. Uh, caring for the poor, helping people heal from things like addiction, a life in prostitution, homelessness, unemployment, uninsured illnesses, hurting marriages, bereavement, and so many other things that Jesus cares about, we get to be part of. Because you're generous. Because a lot of you are generous. And so, last thing I want to say is, is really just to echo what, what Angie said a minute ago. Over 25% of, of the resources that Christ Press gets to deploy every year for ministry come in the month of December. Uh, it's a very essential, critical season of year in, in terms of generosity, member generosity. Uh, I'm so pleased to say I, I'm, I'm approaching eight years here, and this is the seventh time I've stood up to do this, and every single year, uh, we, we've, we've, we've come through not with a shortfall after December, and, and we're, we're praying and hoping uh, for the same level of generosity uh, that um, that our members have been so faithful uh, to participate in. So, so there you go. Now, how about Galatians? How about we talk about Galatians a little bit? Um, <clears throat> Church Without Walls, that's, that's the title of today's sermon that's based on this, this wonderful text from the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to start. Uh, with a couple of sentences from uh, the counselor, the well-known counselor, therapist, Dan Allender. And has Al- written many books, r- many wonderful books. One of them is called How Children Raise Their Parents. And uh, in the introduction of that book, in just two sentences, Allender summarizes every single good book on parenting that's ever been written in just a couple of sentences. So here are those sentences. All children are asking, one, or are asking two questions all the time, and this could be applied to adults as well, really. All children are asking, one, do you love me? And two, can I do whatever I want? And healthy, life-giving parents will figure out a way to, to, to drill it into their kids' heads and hearts that the answer to question one is an unequivocal uh, yes, and the answer to question two is an unequivocal no. And it can often be the case that, that, that you know, in, particularly in two-parent homes, there's a division of labor, where uh, maybe one parent is is more the nurturing party, and the other parent is more the disciplined party, right? And, then, and you know, one major's in nurture, the other major's in discipline, and both minor in what the other major's in. That, that's what you call maybe a healthy, well-balanced approach to parenting. Because if, if parents are all uh, disciplined, then, then it will lead to a harsh, unsympathetic, exasperating climate for the kids. And yet, if, 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 if the parents are all nurture, it, it will lead to entitled spoiled kids who will actually have a very, very hard time adjusting to adulthood where the world won't spoil them, where the world will not spoil them in the ways that, that the parents have. But when you put nurture and discipline together, you get health. And so what we've got here is Paul the Apostle talking about what division of labor looks like among the leaders and, and, the, 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 and also the, the people of God who, who go out into the world To to love the world to life, to to be Christ's messengers as Christ fathers and mothers the world, as he so loves the world. There there are three things that, that I hope we'll all take away with us under that heading of how Christ wants to father and mother, how Christ wants to discipline and nurture the whole world through his people through fixed truth, flexible methods, and a shared mission. So we'll start with a fixed truth. Here's the fixed truth. You're going to be hearing this a lot. You've already heard it. For people to belong with God and for people to be part of the family of God, they need two things. Jesus Christ and nothing else. Jesus Christ and nothing else. If you have those two things You have what you need to belong. As soon as you add something to Jesus Christ, you actually subtract from Jesus Christ. You actually subtract Jesus Christ if you add to Jesus Christ. And that's what the circumcision party or the the false teachers are doing in Galatia. They're adding to, to Christ, which means they're subtracting from Christ, which actually means they're subtracting Christ, which means they're subtracting themselves from Christ. Kind of a tongue twister. Say that real fast, everybody. Just kidding. But... It can't be emphasized enough that only Jesus, only Jesus can create the belonging and the place at the table for Jews and Gentiles, which is sort of the whole world, and that's all. And and what this means is that everybody's a charity case. Everybody's a charity case. The love that comes out of us only comes out of us because God has first loved us. That's what what the Apostle John, Jesus' closest friend, wrote. God has set his affection on us, not because we were special, not because we did something unique, not because we stood out in some, some remarkable way. God set his affection on his people because God set his affection on his people. Paul is exhibit A. There was no earthly reason why Jesus should show any interest in Paul except to eliminate him. Because before he became Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And if we go back to uh, Acts chapter 9, we get the story of how how Saul of Tarsus became Paul and how Saul of Tarsus, who was sort of the celebrity rabbi, uh, became a follower of Jesus and now an ambassador for Jesus. Saul of Tarsus who wrote this letter to the Galatians, would later write write this letter to the Galatians, was on a genocidal crusade. He was on a terrorist mission. And his target, his terrorism target, was people who identified as followers of Jesus Christ. And he believed that he was doing the work of God by destroying Christians. That's who Paul was. And what happens in one of these genocide missions that, that Saul of Tarsus is on is that Jesus, who has since risen from the dead, appears to him on the road to Damascus, it says, in Acts chapter 9, and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's interesting, he doesn't say, why do you persecute my people? Why do you persecute the people I love? He says, why do you persecute me? Isn't that comforting that that. When we experience betrayal, when we experience injury, when we experience suffering, Jesus personalizes it. It becomes as much about him as it becomes about us, because he takes it so personally when we're hurting. And, and, and so Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the apostle. He's converted, and he doesn't know what to do next, and so Jesus sends message to a man named Ananias, who's, who's been a follower for, for some time, and he says, Ananias... I'm sending this man to you and I want you to, you know, sort of give him the instruction manual about how to get started as a follower of Christ. And Ananias says this, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man. I've heard how much evil he's done to your people in Jerusalem. Maybe he was thinking about what happened in Acts chapter 7 where Stephen, a faithful follower of Christ, a young man, is, is executed with, with, you know, basically a, a mob starts throwing rocks at him and executes him for being a follower of Christ. And it says that Saul of Tarsus was the one presiding over the whole thing. And so maybe that's in one of the incidents that Ananias is thinking of when he says to the Lord, are you sure? And Jesus answers Ananias, I want you to go, for he is now my Chosen, hang on to that word, my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. So this is this has got to be an incre- this is an incredibly humbling thing. It's like a, a repentant death row inmate when when he finally faces the people that, that 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 his murderous acts left in bereavement and sorrow. And he has to face them. And, 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 and if he's experienced any, any level of repentance or sorrow or humility in his heart over what he's done, he, he, he will start sobbing. He will be so grieved. And so likewise, Saul of Tarsus, who's now Paul, who was once very proud of his sort of ascending celebrity status as a rabbi, is deeply humbled. He understands, and the whole letter communicates this, that he is not God's choice person. He's God's chosen person. We are not, Christians are not God's choice people, but his chosen people. Your choice because you've accomplished something to deserve deserve what you've gotten, you're chosen because you've been selected whether you deserve it or not. And in our case, in Paul's case, we don't ultimately deserve the kindness that God's given So it doesn't just humble him out of his pride, it also lifts him and anyone who's tuned in to the Jesus and nothing else fixed truth, it lifts us out of our shame. Uh, So Richie Sessions was telling a story um, a couple weeks ago in in a sermon at one of our other congregations, I think it was the Music Row congregation, and he talked about grade school. You remember when, you know, it it was recess and kickball was about to happen or or you know, flag football, and the two best athletes in the class were designated captains, and they're the ones who chose teams, right and um, you know there, there, there are many kids in that scenario that are you know really excited because they know they're going to get chosen first. they, they know they're going to be the first pick because they 're among the better athletes, and then they're the kids that know they're going to get chosen last, and they wouldn't get chosen, they know they also wouldn't get chosen at all if the teachers didn't impose that on the captains to include everybody. So I'll never forget the day in in sixth grade when Scott Wegner, the best athlete in the class, for kickball one day, his first pick was Mark Boggs, who was the most bullied Kid in the class and overlooked and made fun of and teased and belittled and humiliated kid in the class. And Scott Wagner decided he's my first pick. And you can probably guess what happened after that. Everybody kind of went Ananias on Scott Wagner, like, Are, are, are you sure? Like, you don't want to pick this loser? And it's like, That's right. I want Mark. I want Mark on my team. And it's interesting, Everything, every, every mediocre thing that Mark did in the kickball game, everybody cheered and patted, patted him on the back. Why? Because Scott Wegner was on his side. Scott Wegner chose him first. We are Mark Boggs. We are. Jesus is Scott Wegner. We are not choice. We are not super special. God's kindness is not a reward for something we've done to make ourselves stand out. Here's the truth. I know atheists who are better human beings than I am. Gandhi was a 20 times better human being than I am. And if you're telling the truth, you're you're probably going to acknowledge too that there are people who do not share your faith in Christ who are more kind, more generous, more other-center than you are. Which would lead Paul and hopefully all of us to say things like this, grace was given to me. Two charity words. This word grace is literally a charity word. It comes from a Greek word, the Greek New Testament word, charis. We get our word charity from that word. Grace was given to me. Now, Paul's saying I'm a, I, I'm a charity case. Anyone who's in Christ is a charity case because it's Jesus Christ and nothing else that, 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 that gives us belonging. And this is a particularly difficult message to absorb and, and it creates particularly high hurdles For people who've succeeded in life to get past. It's hard when you've got more money than you know what to do with, when you've had more success than you ever dreamed of having, when your family situation is happier than you ever dreamed that it would be, when things are humming along. It's actually really, really difficult to perceive yourself as a charity case. But if you don't perceive yourself as a charity case, You're adding something to Christ, which means you're subtracting Christ, which means you're subtracting yourself from Christ. Always throughout history, the people who have been most receptive and most quick to respond are the weak, the guilty, the poor, those who are lonely, those who are ashamed, it's really hard for a middle class in spirit person to say, I'm a charity case. But when you're an underdog, when, you, when you've messed up, when you've got pain, there's this readiness. Who are the rich people, really? I think that's a question that, that Jesus presses a lot. But here, another implication of, of this fixed message is that anybody can belong Because anybody has access to Jesus and nothing else. Look at at how Barnabas acknowledges this reality with with Paul. You know, Paul is about to meet the big three, the guys who are on the inner ring. Jesus' closest three friends, Peter, James, and John. And how intimidating that's gonna be for somebody who's been heretofore committing genocide against their people. And what Barnabas does, he says, I'll go with you. He's like the, the, the paraclete, the alongside one, a lot like the Holy Spirit. Come on, we got this, we got this, I'm with you. I'll introduce you guys, we'll make it good. It's not gonna be that bad, I promise you. And then it says he arrives and Peter, James, and John perceived the grace, perceived the charity that had been given to Paul. And they extended the right hand of fellowship, which means they said, hey, let's be friends. The Church of Jesus Christ is a community that is not allowed to have walls. It's not allowed. No hurdles, no history is allowed to block any kind of person from having access to Jesus Christ plus nothing else. Are you carrying shame? Do you feel like the adult version of Mark Boggs on the playground? We pick you. We pick you first. You know why? Because Jesus picks people like you first. So there. You belong. It's like, it's like Todd said to the, the families, the baptism. We're with you and for you and there's nothing you can do about that. Nothing you can do about it. Look at who Jesus picks. He picks a poor widow. He picks Mary Magdalene, who'd been plagued with demons. He picks Rahab, who's a prostitute. He picks Peter, who had problems with impulse control and cowardice and xenophobia. He picks James, his own brother, who had denied that he was who he said he was, had denied him as the Christ until after the resurrection, even though he saw more up closely than anybody what Jesus was like as his brother, he picks Saul of Tarsus. He identifies himself as the son of David. Oh yeah, the one who committed adultery and murder and abuse of power. He calls his people Israel, named after the man who was called Israel after he had once been Jacob, whose, name's me, whose name means liar. My people, I'm gonna call him Israel. Or, or he says to followers of Christ in the New Testament, you're all children of Abraham. Oh, the guy who handed his wife over to sexual predators twice to cover his own hide. Oh. It's both scandalously offensive. Who wants to be associated with that person? Hashtag. I'm part of the hashtag thing. Look. Your outrage for your hashtag thing is somebody else's hashtag. And, 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 and truly, I'm, I'm not at all saying that, that. Remember, we've talked about this before. Christianity is a fighting religion. If somebody's being bullied, abused, mistreated, Christians stand up. Christians defend. Christians protect. Christians take in. I'm not at all negating that. But what I am saying is, both the victim and the perpetrator both have access to this. And if you say otherwise, you've subtracted from Christ and you've subtracted yourself from Christ. You don't want to do that. Take my word for it. Fixed truth and flexible methods. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that to the Greeks he becomes like a Greek, to the Jews he becomes like a Jew. He says, I become all things to all people, to all kinds of people, that I might possibly save some. Paul's method is, to put it in shorthand, to learn the love language of whatever group it is that he's going into, and and to take this fixed message and package it and communicate it in the love language. You can say, I love you in as many languages as there are languages. Paul speaks the love language of whoever he's with with the Gentiles in the 17th chapter of Acts, these are the Greek intellectuals, this is kind of the Hillsborough Village, Vanderbilt, you know, Belmont people, the professors, the Areopagus they're called. He doesn't quote a single passage of the Bible as he tries to take them to Jesus Christ. Instead, he says, as some of your own poets and philosophers have said, and then he quotes their their poets, their philosophers from memory, and then he bridges the truths that were embedded into their systems and says, the gospel agrees. And so let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about Jesus. See, when Paul Lim gets up here and he quotes a lyric from 21 Pilots, you know what he's doing? He's reaching your kids. He's reaching students because he knows how to speak the language of students. He knows what he's doing. When Stacy Croft quotes the New York Times, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's going after the university culture in which he finds himself. When Russ put, Ramsey puts a, a Van Gogh on the screen and spends 10 minutes of his sermon explaining the painting and connecting it to truth and beauty from God, it's because he feels a specific calling toward those who are creatively oriented. You know, I'll get up here and draw on the likes of Nietzsche, the Indigo Girls, Stephen Hawking, David Foster Wallace, Hannah Arndt, Gandhi, Jason Isbell. None of these are Christians. None of them. But just as Christians can say and do some really dumb things, people who are not Christians can say and do some really brilliant things. And where brilliant things are happening outside of Christianity it's actually a resource from which Christians can draw and and say, look, as some of your own poets and philosophers and writers and musicians and journalists have said, ah, can we talk about Jesus? Can we talk about the real one? Like not the politically partisan one or the the nominal one or the, the cultural Christian, but the real one. Can we talk about what that means? To be a person of truth, beauty, and justice? The real Jesus? All truth is God's truth. But then when he's talking to the Jews in Acts chapter 13, this is in Antioch, he speaks their language. He doesn't quote a single secular philosopher or poet. Instead, he quotes only Old Testament because that's the text that they'd been raised in. That's what they knew. That's what they'd come to cherish And he says, let me show you how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these sacred texts that you've been writing on your foreheads all of your lives and drilling them into your minds and hearts. Let me tell you how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. then he's got this social EQ around the Jews. He, He knows how to act in different circumstances, right? Here in the Galatians situation, He says to the young Greek Titus, the young Greek man Titus, there's no way on earth we're gonna circumcise you. But then in Acts chapter 17, he brings along another young protege, Timothy, and says, we're about to talk to a bunch of Jewish people. How about you get circumcised? Just to remove the barriers. It's gonna be messy, it's gonna hurt, it's gonna be bloody, but let's do it. See, in the first first situation in Galatia, he's confronting religious tyranny. In the second situation, he's building a bridge. So he's got a social EQ that's off the charts. He recognizes that on the one hand, if you're a Jew, be a Jew with all your heart. If you're a Gentile, be a Gentile with all your heart in Christ. If you're, if you're an artist, if, you're, you know, if you live in Belmede, if you live in North Nashville, if you live in you know, Creve Hall, be that zip code with all your heart in Jesus Christ. You know, be an Ole Miss person, be an Auburn person, be a Princeton person, with all of your heart. But as soon as you make that thing, the basis by which you judge yourself and others, it becomes problematic when you elevate it to a divinely ordained higher spirituality or superiority position. And that's what's going on in Galatians. Paul models maturity... Here's what Christian maturity is. Less demanding, more flexible. Less pressure, more rest. That's what real Christianity is. And Paul's modeling it and he's living it. This, by the way, is why you'll never hear us criticize other churches. We're not in competition. There's some, there are great churches, all kinds of great churches in Nashville, Tennessee, and we celebrate all kinds of great churches in Nashville, Tennessee, in the same way that Paul is celebrating Peter, James and John, and they're celebrating him. It's one kingdom, same team. There are churches here that are reaching people we'd never be able to reach, and vice versa. Finally, shared mission, and I'll sprint us to the finish line here. You know, what does it mean when a preacher looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. Ministry of word and deed. Galatians is a fiercely doctrinal book. Did you catch it? Did you catch what he said about the outflow of your doctrine? Peter, James, and John, they, they were they were they wanted me to be careful to remember the poor, which was the very thing I was eager to do. One sign that Jesus runs your church is that the closer you get to the inside, the more blatantly obvious it is that people who've hit bottom, people who are disabled, people who are underdogs, people for whom life is not working, people who experience weakness every day, people who are behind, people who are addicted, people who are sexually damaged, people who have regrets, people who have shame, people who haven't had a shower in three weeks, will start to say, this place and these people, more than any other place, more than any other people, home home he welcomes the weakest the vilest the poor our sins they are many his mercy is more he's talking about the material poor you really can't get away from this as a, as a person who identifies with jesus Christ. you can't get away from it his inaugural speech in the fourth chapter of luke the spirit of the sovereign lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor The Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Luke chapter 6, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Matthew chapter 11, the poor have the gospel preached to them. These are all words from Jesus' mouth. And then Matthew 25, that haunting parable of the sheep and the goats. Whatever you've done for the poor, you've, you've actually done it for me. Whatever you've neglected that you ought to have done for the poor, you neglected me. Just remember, he personalizes things that happen. Good, The good and the bad, he personalizes things that happen to people that he's giving special attention to. But it's also the Laodicean poor. Laodicea was, you know, this church that was written about in Revelation chapter 3. And their poverty was not that they had too little. Their poverty was that they had too much. You know, they were sort of the case study of what Paul was talking about when he says, command those who are rich to be generous lest... They wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. The chilly thing about Laodicea is that if you hear a description of Laodicea, it will sound a lot like our hometown of Nashville. A, A center for innovation and entrepreneurism. The world capital of healthcare. Lots and lots of resources. They actually had a natural disaster, a devastating natural disaster, an earthquake, not unlike what the floods did to Nashville in 2010. A very independent spirit. When when Laodicea was destroyed by the earthquake, they rebuilt it themselves. They they said no thanks to federal assistance. We've got this. And Jesus says to them, here's your self-conception. Your self-conception is that you're rich, you're prosperous, that you need nothing, but here's what I say. You're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. You're nominal. You're naked. You're poor. You're wretched. You're blind. And it's nauseating how independent you are, how, how prone you are to add stuff to Jesus, thereby subtracting from him. But then he gives them an invitation He says, but for anyone who will listen, become my charity case. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them, and they with me. Will you come? Will you come? Are you thirsty? You feel like Mark Boggs. First pick. You are first pick. Will you come? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you welcome the weakest and the vilest and the poor. Thank you that you welcome charity cases. And we all need charity from you. Open our Macedonian eyes to see that though materially impoverished, we are so rich in the blessing that we have from you and the favor of God that hovers over us. And and for the Laodicean poor among us, help us to see that your love is more precious than silver, more costly than gold, more beautiful than diamonds, and that nothing we desire compares with you. We are all beggars, as Luther said on his deathbed. We are all beggars, and you've given us bread. Thank you for this, sir. We come to your table now with gratitude, grateful for your charity, given freely not to choice people, but to chosen people. Amen.